You could be seated. Well, we've been studying the book of Matthew together as a church over the last several weeks. And you probably know, you might not, that Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And those four books give us four portraits, complementary portraits of Jesus. So who was Jesus? Who is Jesus, perhaps we should say? Some people think that Jesus was a good teacher, and simply a good teacher. You know, he taught us to turn the other cheek, and to love your enemy, and to be the salt of the earth, and so on. Some throughout history have acknowledged that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed a miracle worker, apparently. Even Josephus, the Jewish non-Christian historian of the first century, he attested that Jesus, quote, wrought surprising feats before being crucified. And we'll see in our passage for today that the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders, also acknowledged the veracity of Jesus' miracles. They couldn't deny it. Some choose to lean into a compassionate Jesus. You know, one who showed concern for the poor, the broken, the needy, the outcasts, and especially children. Well, we will see in our passage today we will see that the Bible insists, we've been seeing in our study of Matthew, that Jesus is all of this and so much more. He is all this and so much more. Matthew uses summary statements or purpose statements, really, to show us this in a couple of key parts of his book. Let me just point these out to you briefly. Look at chapter 4, verse 23, if you want to turn there. Of Matthew, he says, he went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. What did Jesus do? He was preaching and teaching, and he was healing. And then if you look at chapter 9, verse 35, our chapter for today, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Teaching and preaching on the one hand, healing and showing compassion on the other. Jesus is not one or the other. In fact, sure enough, that's exactly what Matthew has been demonstrating in this long section from Matthew 5 to Matthew 9. Remember, there's a purpose statement right before in Matthew 4. There's a purpose statement right at the end of Matthew 9. And what do we have in the middle? We've got Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus teaching and preaching. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. And then we have Matthew 8 and 9, and it's a series of miracles with a couple of calls to discipleship thrown in there. Now, much of the miracles so far has, have emphasized Jesus' authority, his power to do these great, mighty things. But today we come to a string of miracles that really emphasize Jesus' 
compassion, his care, his tenderness as he interacts with those severely afflicted with various trials. So compassion and tenderness on the one hand, authority and power to accomplish these things. On the other, Jesus is perfectly unique in his combination of these things, unlike anyone else. World leaders might be strong, not that compassionate. Moms might be compassionate, but they're not going to conquer the world. They don't need to. Well, Jesus in Matthew 9 shows us his care for the afflicted and his power over their affliction. So if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 9, and let's start reading in verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all the district. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never has anything like this been seen in Israel. But the Pharisee said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. We'll stop there for this week. Well, each of these three miracle stories, or four, depending on how you want to count them, each has a unique malady. It has a unique person and kind of person. It has a unique interaction with Jesus and unique circumstances and places surrounding that interaction. But they also have a lot in common. They all kind of go a similar way. So rather than study each miracle one at a time in successive order, as really we would normally do with a passage like this, what I'd like to do this morning instead is to look at four aspects of these stories. What, really what they share, how they follow a similar pattern. 
There's a desperate situation, a faith-filled request, a powerful healing, and then there are mixed responses. That's our outline for this morning, if you want to follow along with that. First, desperate situations. Each of these stories begins with a desperate situation. The first situation there in verse 18 and following is a father with a dying daughter. In Mark and Luke's account, they tell the same story, only with slight differences. In Mark and Luke, it says that the girl is about to die as the man approaches Jesus. And later, she is dead when they arrive at the house. Matthew, you notice, just compresses the story And he says that the father said to Jesus, his daughter is dead. That's not a contradiction with Mark or Luke. Matthew is just getting to the facts that we need for this story, ASAP. In fact, just coincidentally, just curiously I should say, even though Matthew is the longest of these four gospel accounts, Matthew often tells the same stories with less detail than Mark or Luke do. The point is that this is a desperate father with a dying 12-year-old daughter. She's practically dead. She's at death's door. She is soon going to be dead. Now this man, this father, is a ruler, it says. That's not a ruler of civil authority. It's a ruler of the local Jewish synagogue. Not totally unlike how our church and churches like ours have elders in the church that help lead the church. He's one of those guys for the local synagogue. Now keep in mind the social and religious dynamics surrounding Jesus and his ministry in these days. Keep in mind that Jesus has already publicly rebuked the kind of religious practice of the Pharisees, those those Jewish leader elites. And keep in mind, the Pharisees have already openly questioned Jesus and his practice of eating meals with tax collectors and sinners, as we saw last week. In fact, the Pharisees may still be on the scene as we begin our passage this week. Notice verse 18, while he was saying these things, what things? Well, this seems to be the same scene that we saw last week. Remember, Jesus is in the house of Matthew, the tax collector, and they're throwing a party. And they've invited other tax collectors and sinners to get to meet Jesus. The Pharisees questioned that. Shortly after that, the disciples of John also began questioning Jesus and his followers, saying, It seems like you guys fast, or rather feast, way more than you fast. What's with that? Well, then Jesus answers that question, verses 15 to 17. He answers that question, then verse 18, while he was saying these things. Same scene. Behold, a ruler, a ruler of the synagogue, comes in to Matthew's house. And knelt before Jesus. That's a desperate man. That's a man who's got some things to lose. 
Some of you have looked upon your own child breathing their last. Some of you have had a child on death's door. Some of you have just had very scary situations with the health or well-being of a child. Or maybe just another loved one. doesn't have to be a child, but especially with a child. That parent-child care and concern is so powerful, any parent knows it. So where do we turn when things are at their hardest, their bleakest, their scariest? Well, we'll come back to that in a bit. Notice the second situation. It's on the way to the ruler's house where progress is interrupted, verse 20, by a desperate woman with a discharge of blood, it says. This is probably constant menstruation. Mark tells us that she had this issue for 12 years and that she had suffered much under many physicians. She had spent all that she had and she was no better but grew worse. That's a bad situation. And that's just the medical assessment of her problems. There are also religious, ceremonial, and cultural, and social ones as well. According to Levitical law, she would have been considered ceremonially unclean because of this blood issue. She could pass that ceremonial uncleanness onto others as well. If she touched them, if they touched her, if they touched where she touched. And anyone then who became unclean by her would have to go through a ritual purification to come out on the other side to be ceremonially clean. So she really was an outcast from society. Perhaps an outcast even with her family. She had to keep a safe distance from people. She would announce that she was in the public, unclean, unclean. Keep your distance. She suffers physically, socially, religiously. She's alone. She has no one. She's out of options. But Mark tells us she had heard reports about Jesus. She had heard about the miracles. She had heard about his mighty acts and his care and compassion. Well, then there's this third situation, verse 27 and following, of the two blind men. As Jesus passed on from there, two blind men begin to follow him. We're not told more about these blind men, how they became blind, or how long they've been blind. We only know that they're blind They have each other, but not much else. And we can also imagine that blindness in the ancient world was much harder to to manage and deal with than it would be in our culture today. These are guys who really suffer greatly. There's the fourth situation, verse 32 and following, of a demon-oppressed mute Man, And once again, not many details are given. There's no story to go along with what this looked like or how this happened. It's just a man who's demon-possessed, and the effect of that demon possession apparently is that he is speechless. He can't speak. 
He's helpless. Well, these are desperate situations, and desperate situations are just ripe for Jesus to step into. Secondly, we, secondly, we see there are faith-filled requests in these scenes. There's the father of the girl. We've already considered his bravery as he would come in front of Pharisees into Matthew's house and kneel before Jesus. Kneel before Jesus and say, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. We don't know how much he knows or understands about this Jesus, but it is enough for him to believe that Jesus can overcome death. And that's remarkable. Previous to this in the Bible, there were only two other occasions where the dead were raised. Both were in the days of the prophets Elijah and Elisha. 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 4. The point is, resurrections do not grow on trees. And yet, perhaps this ruler, this father, knows of the promise in Isaiah 25, 8, given 600 years before Jesus showed up, that one day God will swallow up death forever. Death came into this world as a result of our sin. And it has dominated humanity ever since. But it is not forever. It is not omnipotent. And perhaps this ruler, this father, connects such grand biblical dots and ties them to Jesus. As with the bleeding woman. Well, she doesn't have a request per se, that doesn't quite fit with my heading, I realize. She says nothing to Jesus, in fact, but her faith is demonstrated in this humble hope that if she could just touch one of the tassels hanging from his garment, she would be made well. Now, whether this was superstitious or not, perhaps it was just a little stitious. I don't know. But Jesus, Jesus doesn't chide her. Jesus instead commends her faith in verse 22. Of course, Jesus' garments don't have magical powers inherent in them. No, it's his power and his prerogative to heal. But in humility, she believes that a quiet touch of his garment will be all she needs to be made well and Jesus will make it so. As for the two blind men, they actually exhibit the clearest faith in our passage. They cried aloud, verse 27, have mercy on us, son of David. That's the first time anyone in the narrative has called Jesus son of David. Matthew has, as he introduced his book to us. Back in chapter 1, verse 1, he said, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. Son of David, why did that matter? Well, it goes back to 2 Samuel 7, 
about a thousand years before Jesus came. In that passage, God promised to King David that he would have an eternal throne through his offspring. A massive promise. A massive covenant, we call it. And how would that be fulfilled? An eternal throne through David's offspring? Well, either that would be an unending string of Davidic sons perpetually reigning on David's throne, or what is really the case, that eventually one single son of David who himself was eternal would come to reign eternally and singularly on David's throne. That's Jesus. Matthew's whole agenda has been to show that Jesus is the son of David, the promised one, the Messiah. And no one in the story has put it on their lips yet until two blind men see it and then say it. How do these blind men see so clearly? Well, they do. Do you believe that I'm able to do this, Jesus asked? They said, yes, Lord. Such lofty terms. Well, for time's sake, let's move on to the third heading. You've got powerful healings that eventually come in each of these scenes. We've seen the desperate situation and the faith-filled request of that desperate father. What will Jesus do as we back up to the beginning of our passage? Well, after that small interruption on the way to the ruler's house, Jesus eventually arrives to that house, and the daughter is indeed dead, and a funeral has begun. Now, in those days, as strange as it seems to us, families hired professional mourners for their funerals. You'd hire a couple of singers, a couple of musicians, and a couple of loud wailers. It seems weird to us, I know. Hearsts would seem weird to them. It's just, there's some cultural things associated with our funerals. But, but that's what's meant here by these flute players and those wailing and the commotion in verse 23. Jesus tells them to stop. Stop. Verse 24, go away. And he says this curious thing. For the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And so they laughed at him. Well, yeah, they laughed because the girl really was dead. She wasn't sleeping. They were not mistaken. But Jesus is rather enigmatically inferring it's like she's only sleeping. He says she's only sleeping to provoke thought, perhaps to stir up faith in the Father. He's hinting at the fact that her death is not death for him. Waking her for him is as simple as waking someone from a nap. When the crowd had been put outside, he took her by the hand and the girl arose. He raised the dead. Similarly, Jesus will later on raise Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. But both the 12-year-old girl and Lazarus were simply foretastes 
of Jesus' decisive defeat of death at the cross and in his resurrection. That's where this story is going. That's where Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all go. That's where they end. Some have said that the gospel accounts are passion narratives, passion week, you know, that week before Jesus died and the the week he died and was buried and raised, that they're passion narratives with long introductions because it's just, you can just tell the writing's on the wall. That's what's coming. That's where this thing is going. And that's really what is needed. Something more, even more, something more than the resurrection of dead Lazarus or the dead 12-year-old girl. As important as that was, as wonderful as that was, even though they were raised from the dead, they would eventually still die again. Jesus didn't conquer death in their resurrection. No, he conquered death in his resurrection. And that's what we need. We need the defeat of death. And you might say as a skeptic, Well, then why do people die still today? If really Jesus did die and conquered death and was raised to life, why does anyone die? Even you Christians, why do you still die? Well, Jesus' resurrection meant the defeat of death in principle, but not yet in its finality. The power of death is defeated. The penalty of death is defeated for those who believe. And one day, it will be completely defeated. One day, Isaiah 25, 8 will be true. He will swallow up death forever. And he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. But even now, for those who believe in Jesus, Jesus' death and resurrection transforms death. Death isn't going to nowhere. Death isn't going to hell Death for them is going to be with Jesus. Jesus said in John 11, right before he raised Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And so the raising of Lazarus and this 12-year-old girl are beautiful, powerful hints of what's to come in the cross and resurrection. Now as for the bleeding woman, it was with a touch of his garment that she was healed. And Jesus said, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Now at some point, we've got to talk about the role of faith in healing, and especially these healings. Verse 22, your faith has made you well. And then down in verse 29 with the two blind men, he says, according to your faith, be it done to you. So does faith earn healing? Is that how it works? Does enough faith, thank you for that. (laughs) Does enough faith somehow earn healing from Jesus? No, thank you. (laughs) 
You see, faith is not some sort of substance that if we have enough of, then it gets over the edge and like it, it warrants something with God. It, it demands something of God. No, it's not something we need to work up enough of. That's actually putting faith in faith. And that, that's not what's going on here at all. In these healing stories, people do not have faith in faith. They have faith in Jesus. Jesus is the object of the faith. Faith is only as good as the thing in which you're putting your faith. So if someone were to say, why well, have faith in humanity? Well, I'd say you're being quite naive. You might want to live a little longer or read some history books because it hasn't gone so well. And some say, well, I'm putting my faith in my children or my spouse or my parents. But haven't you learned yet? They will let you down. And besides, they can't save you. Some would say, well, I think all faiths are the same. But that's impossible. Because with faith, there's an object of faith. And that's the very nature of different world religions. They have different objects of faith. Only Jesus, according to Christianity, is the one in which we find true hope. And so we believe in that. The question is not, do you have enough faith but what is your faith in? Who is your faith in? In each of these healings, Jesus is welcoming and commending trust, but not just trust, trust in him. And notice he does so, so gently and tenderly. Notice the gentleness and tenderness and nearness of Jesus weaved through these stories. He hear his words to the 12-year-old, take heart, daughter. And then he took her by the hand. He sees, he speaks, he touches. And he didn't need to do any of that even to heal them. He communicates and demonstrates his affection and his nearness in his care with words and with touch, and with proximity. It's all very beautiful. It's a very sweet Savior we have. His power and authority, of course, are fully on display as he conquers nothing less than death itself. But it just sort of drips with his care and compassion for the real hurt of these hurting people. The two blind men, notice he touched their eyes. Again, there's that touch. He touched their eyes and their eyes were opened. He has power over death. He has power over disease. Isaiah 35, which Ben read for us earlier, foretold this. The Lord your God shall come. He will come and save you. And the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. 
And with the demon-possessed man who was mute, Jesus cast out the demon and the man spoke. Isaiah 35 was happening literally and physically in the healing of the blind and the mute that day. But especially with the healing of the blind, I think we have something more than just a physical ailment that gets fixed. I think we have something of a symbol of our salvation, of how we become a Christian. I think Jesus' miracles are essentially parables, living, breathing parables about what we are, what we need, and his ability to do it, spiritually speaking. In other words, the Bible says that we are born spiritually blind, all of us. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your religion. It doesn't even matter if you grew up in a Christian home. We're born spiritually blind. That's why this world is bent and broken. That is why we do wrong. That is why we get things wrong. That is why there are hundreds of crazy religions out there. Because we're all just groping. We're all just trying to guess. What we need is a miracle. A miracle of spiritual sight. In 2 Corinthians 4, I quoted one verse from that last week. I'll get to that. Before it is this verse in verse 4, that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. But, here's the verse I quoted last week. But the God who said back at creation, light, shine out of darkness, is the God who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Has he done that with you? When you look at Jesus in the pages of scripture, what do you see? Well, that leads us to this last heading to consider. Mixed responses. There are various responses found after each of these healing scenes. After the raising of the little girl from death to life, verse 26, the report of this went throughout all the district. I should say so. After the blind man, blind men had their eyes opened, verse 30, Jesus sternly warned them See that no one knows about it. Now, why did Jesus warn them to tell no one? Well, this is a curious thing found multiple times in these gospel accounts, especially in Mark, but not just in Mark. It's sometimes called the messianic secret. It's curious, but it's understandable once you get your arms around it. Jesus said things like this, at this point in his plan... Number one, because he didn't want word that he is the Messiah to spread before he could more fully explain and demonstrate what kind of Messiah he came to be. He didn't come to be a mighty warrior king that would overthrow the Roman tyranny. No, in fact, he came to be the suffering servant who would die at the hands of the Romans. 
And it's going to take some time and some teaching and some showing before even his closest followers come to understand that. That's one reason Jesus says, tell no one. And the other is just the timing of it all. He will die at the hands of the Romans at the right time. Not before, not after. He's orchestrating these events to make it ripe for the conditions that lead up to that weekend of the cross and resurrection. And nevertheless, despite his stern warnings to not tell, guess what people do? They tell. And you kind of can't blame them, can you? No, they went away, it says, verse 31, and spread his fame throughout all that district. It's understandable. We speak of the things that we experience, powerfully experience, especially those things that are more amazing. News spreads. And news of Jesus has spread, hasn't it? Here we are, the other side of the globe, 2,000 years later, praying for Christians in North Africa and ones that haven't yet come to believe, but they've heard. You've heard. I've heard. We've heard. Hopefully we have told others as well. In fact, on this side of the cross and resurrection, there's no messianic secret. In fact, our job is messianic gossiping, you might say. We're just blah, 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 blah. Jesus everywhere. We want to get him out. We're supposed to. That's how Matthew ends, with a great commission to go and tell the world. Now, back in our passage, verse 33, some marveled. They said, never was anything like this seen in Israel. Mind-blowing, it's unparalleled, it's undeniable. And yet even when it's undeniable and admittedly unparalleled, that doesn't mean you'll come to believe. The crowd marveled, which probably means they were impressed, more curious, interested, still seeking this thing out, still got questions to be answered. But there's another group here, the Pharisees. And with them, it is outright rejection, despite the fact that they have seen this very thing happen. Verse 34, the Pharisee said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. So apparently seeing isn't always believing, is it? Now, some skeptics will say things like that. Well, if I had been there back then, if I had seen Jesus do these purported things, if I had seen it with my own eyes, I would believe. You probably wouldn't. You probably wouldn't. You sure wouldn't believe simply because you saw, because there were some who saw the miracles and didn't believe. Sure, some saw the miracles and it did lead to their belief. Some believed in Jesus before they ever witnessed a miracle, though. And many have come to believe on Jesus. Almost all of us in this room who have come to believe in Jesus, we have come to believe in Jesus without seeing him like the blind men did. Remember them? Remember the blind men who even before seeing 
confessed Jesus as the son of David. They, they saw before they had sight. And you contrast that with these Pharisees whose eyes, physical eyes, worked fine. They saw Jesus, they saw the miracles, and they didn't deny the miracles. They couldn't. But rather than own up to all that that signified, they attributed this miraculous power not to the divine, but to the demonic. He casts out demons by the prince of demons, Satan. Which doesn't even make any sense. And Jesus points that out in Luke's account of this. He says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Satan opposes Satan. Satan's trying to overthrow Satan. That doesn't make any sense, fellas, does it? It doesn't make any sense. And even with these Pharisees, religious leaders, people of the Bible, experts in the scriptures, ones who were trained to be watching and waiting for the Messiah. He was right in front of them. He was showing, him, showing them the deeds that confirm that he's Messiah. And instead of believing, well, they connected it all to Satan. It's no surprise that later in Matthew, in chapter 23, Jesus will address these Pharisees directly. And, and four times, he will call them blind. You blind Pharisees, you blind men, you blind leaders. How about you? Are you blind or do you see? You say, I'm somewhere in between. I don't know. Okay. I, that is an experience. There actually is a, a two-stage miracle, not in Matthew, but in another gospel account, and a man sees halfway before he sees all the way. But apart from that, there's sort of just kind of blindness or sight, rejection or belief. And what will it be with you? Maybe you're blind to your own blindness. You haven't yet admitted that you're blind. Or maybe you're blind to Jesus. Or maybe you would say, I'm partially blind, I think. I, I, I want a certain kind of Jesus. I'm good with a good teacher, Jesus. Compassionate Jesus. Kids on his lap, Jesus. But I don't want all the Jesus stuff. But there's, there's no buffeting. There's no selectivity with this Jesus. You're all in or not. I pray you'd come to be all in. I pray today would be a day when that 2 Corinthians 4 experience happens. Blindness, light. You see Jesus. And you don't get all of it yet. You still have some questions perhaps. But you've come to believe that you were spiritually blind in your sin. And Jesus died on the cross for your sins and was raised on the third day to give life eternal for all those who would simply believe it and embrace it. I pray you do that today. Christian, brothers and sisters, let us keep coming back to this merciful, kind, and gracious, this tender Savior. He may not be with us physically in the room. He may not reach out and touch you this afternoon. I suspect he won't. 
I don't even know if he will heal you of this or that ailment and difficulty that you have. But I know that he cares. I know that he can heal anything. I know according to the Bible that we can ask him of anything and he hears us. And we can trust his will to be better than what we want. That's why Jesus, even Jesus prayed in the garden. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And we know from the Bible that one day all ailments will be fixed. They'll disappear. They'll be gone. He'll settle it all. And until then, we know that he knows and he cares and he is with us even when we can't see him. So let's keep leaning into Jesus. Let's keep calling out to Jesus. Let's keep seeking him, reaching out. He's there. He's good. He's gentle and compassionate. And let's follow our Savior's example. Showing compassion and care for the broken and hurting of this world is not something that's reserved for Jesus. It's just something he does better than anyone else. And his followers are supposed to imitate him in these ways. When we look out and we see hurt in our broken city, what, what's your heart disposition? I, I'm not even asking, what do you do for that person strung out on drugs, that homeless person, that pregnant woman living in a cardboard box? I don't even ask what you do. What do you feel? It starts with that. Jesus had compassion. And let's point them to Jesus. Let's show compassion. But let's also point them to Jesus who gives hope beyond temporary comforts. And brothers and sisters, let's not be surprised when some around us in this world will conclude that our very best intentions are actually evil. They'll say that. Oh, you think that? It's wicked. You don't have people's best interest in mind. That is not the common good, some might say. Well, will we stick with Jesus? Even when we're maligned, even when they say, that good, that quote-unquote good you did, oh, this is all wicked. Let them say it. Our Jesus knows where we stand. It's with him that we stand or fall. With him we stand. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you once again for your word and for these snapshots of Jesus and his care, his concern, his compassion, his nearness. Lord, we thank you for where these snapshots take us in this story that Matthew's laying out, the cross and resurrection. Nothing less than that degree of compassion and care that degree of power over sin and Satan and death. We thank you for all that our Savior is for us. Help us to see him with the eyes of faith more and more by your grace and for our good. Amen.